Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, the 2019 World Track and Field Championships are in the books. We've got an action jam-packed podcast for you today. We'll discuss everything worlds. And we've got the Ineo Sub 2 Challenge with Elliot Kipchoge taking place tomorrow. We've got the Chicago Marathon with Galen Rupp, Mo Farah, Jordan Hesse, all formerly coached by Alberto Salazar, who's still banned. And we've got tons of Alberto Salazar talk. Track and field in October, still going strong. I'm Let's Run.com founder, Weldon Johnson, joined by the most controversial man in track and field, my fellow co-founder, Robert Johnson, and the hardest working man in track and field, Jonathan Galt, just touching down from Doha, about to head off to Chicago. Guys, welcome. Yeah, I'm I'm going to Chicago. I leave Friday morning, but... You know, I was I was a little uh, I was wondering why you sent me there instead of Vienna. You got the options. You're saying which one of you guys are going to Vienna? I'm sure Vienna is very nice this time of year. Uh, or are we sending anyone out to this Ineos 159 challenge? Jonathan, as Rush Limbaugh once famously said, "I hope he fails." Why? There's so much to talk about. Do we need to talk about some contrived two-hour thing? I was not a fan of the first one. I did watch the first one. It ended up being much more interesting than I thought it would be. But now we're going to see if he can take 26 seconds off just because Nike put a second or third carbon fiber plate in the shoe. Like, it doesn't interest me. Like, he might as well run down a freaking marathon. I want to see him race the best. You know, you were debating a few weeks ago on the podcast, what else could he do? How about win the Grand Slam? In tennis, to win the Grand Slam is a big deal. How about winning New York, Boston, Tokyo? These marathons that he's never won. How about racing the best? Bikile. You really care about him going and winning the Tokyo Marathon, Robert? I don't think so. But let's get to that in a minute. Right now, let's focus on Worlds. They just happened. And guys, pretty simple. Let's give us our biggest winners and losers from Worlds. Robert, I'll start with you. Biggest winner from the 2019 World Championships. I think it's got to be myself, quite honestly. I mean, I, 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 how could I say this? A few weeks ago on the podcast, I was called a fraud, a, a liar. What, what did Mr. Seth Coleman call me? John, do you remember exactly the words? But I, I was basically called everything bad as a journalist. And yet when Worlds was all done, and it was an action-packed world, so much news off the track, on the track, how did it end? It ended with the star of the World Championships supporting yours truly, none other than Safan Hassan. The woman who did the unprecedented 10,500 double, when she finishes, what does she say? She says, you guys can drug test me every single day. So my idea of drug testing Mr. Christian Coleman every single day is actually endorsed by a prominent Nike athlete. Thank you, Mrs. Hassan. Thank you very, very much. Oh, wow. Because I thought you were going to say you were going to brag about your success in you know, predicting the the events and it turns out what you didn't even enter the prediction contest robert so can't really brag about that i i did enter i had some trouble i forgot to take hassan out of the 5000 and move her into the 1500 and that point i gave up but again it was also victory for team johnson we all weldon has crushed jonathan in the prediction contest 
were genetic equals. So it's much, much like his running career. While I never broke 30 minutes in the 10,000, I feel like I ran 28.06. While I never made the Olympic trials or even ran collegiately, I feel like I did. And hey, you know, I, as a result of being Walden's brother, I got a college coaching job. I get paid from Let'sRun.com, even though I'm nothing more than an unprofessional hack. Well, spoken like a true loser. I mean, if Weldon beats you in tennis, would you claim that as a victory for yourself because he's your genetic equal? I mean, that's really a losing mentality. But Weldon, I'll congratulate you. You beat me fair and square in the prediction contest. I was worried the final day. I was hoping to make up some ground on the relays, but you came through. Congratulations, track and field Noah. Thank you. Thank you. I may just retire right now. It was a huge, a lot of pressure the last few days of the world. I couldn't focus on my work. I was so worried you were going to catch me in the prediction contest. But it's a true honor. I didn't win, you know, one of the top three prizes from our sponsor, Running Warehouse. It's a Running Warehouse gift certificate and Hoka Oni Oni Rincon shoes. But hey, just to be John, it's it's like coming in first place for me. So Weldon, biggest winner from track and field, the World Championships, apart from yourself in the prediction contest. Man, it's kind of where do I go with this one? I'm gonna go with Donovan Brazier. It's weird. Other other Nike Oregon Project athletes like Sifan Hassan, I'm going to leave out. But Brazier wasn't coached by Alberto Salazar. I think to crush the American record, get the championship record, get the gold medal, he's my biggest winner. I mean, delivered, some would argue, as expected. But I think a lot of people outside of the Western community didn't view this American you know, as a gold medal favorite in the 800 meters. So Donovan Brazier is my biggest winner of the championships. Biggest loser now, or are we going to go across? Well, I want to give my winner. Okay. My biggest winner, somewhat of a controversial pick because she is a member of the Nike Oregon Project. She is or was coached by Alberto Salazar, but I have to pick Safan Hassan. I mean, even if you took away one of the races she ran, either one of those races on their own could be enough to argue that she's the winner. She won the 10,000 in 3017, closing in 359 for her last 1,500 meters. And then she comes back a week later and wins the 1500 in 351, one of the most dominant 1500 runs of all time. She takes the lead on the first lap, just leads everyone to a PR parade behind her, but dusts them all. I mean, Faith Kipigon, 354 for second. She wasn't even within two seconds of Hassan. And then you add them together. She won the 1500. If anyone won the 1500 and 10K at the same worlds, that's one of the greatest running accomplishments of all time. To do both of them in historic dominant fashion, yes, I know her coach was suspended, but this these allegations all happened before she joined the group. I, I can't say for sure if any athlete is clean in the sport, but Safan Hassan, based on what she accomplished in Doha, she has to be the biggest winner for me. Well, John, since we're going to be going down the Hassan praise chain, do you want to just throw your praise out the IAAF for making that 10,000-1,500 double possible. You were very critical of the 1,500-5,000 double not being possible. Thank God it wasn't, because then she would never have tried the 10,000-1,500 double. I'm sure she would have done the 10,500. And we probably should actually thank USA, the arbitration panel as well for releasing the ban of Salazar in the middle of the World Championships, because it sounds like um, Salazar was going to try to make her run the 5,000. Once he was out of the picture, she was free as a woman to make her own choice. And... Kind of interesting on that front. But, guys, I'm going to go on, on my biggest winner. Um, I thought about giving it uh, sort of half seriously to Lamine Diak, the Diak family. I think they made $3.5 million to, for the Doha Worlds to, to get them. But since they're kind of like Alberto out of the picture now, I got to go with Karsten Warholm. He's my biggest winner in the sense of not only does he win the gold medal, 
But his Ingebrigtsen rivals for attention in the track and field scene in Norway, they don't meddle at all. So now he can rise up the social media landscape and get all the endorsements and everything. Ingebrigtsen has been exposed. I'm kind of kidding here, but um, yeah. My biggest winner is Karsten Warholm. I got another biggest winner. Outdoor air conditioning. Holy shit, that thing was amazing, John. I mean, we, we would sit in the stadium every day. I think maybe the first couple days I would notice it. Like one day I was sitting way up top near a corner. And I was like, oh, it's a little warm today. But besides that, it was unbelievable. We did the Media 800 on Friday. It's in the middle of the day. It feels like temperature was 116. And you didn't even feel like you were hot. I mean, it was crazy. They had the air conditioning running full blast. And I figured on the track you wouldn't be able to feel it, but you could feel it fine. I jogged across the center of the infield. No problem. Like, it wasn't that hot. It was pretty crazy. Um, they said for the – I think for the actual, like, events at Worlds, they turned off the air conditioning while the races were run. I'm not sure about that. So you wouldn't feel the air circulating around. So maybe they felt a little bit more warmth than John and I, but pretty amazing. Yeah, while we're at it, actually, I'm going to add out a second winner as well since we all seem to be doing that. Whoever came up with the light shows that they put on before the finals on the track – that was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in a track meet. The first time it happened was the men's 100-meter final, which was the opening Saturday. And the lights all go dark, and I'm like, oh, my God, what about, what's about to happen? And then they just they start – these lights are circulating around the track. They've got them synced up with the lane lines. They've got all the names coming out. They've got lasers going everywhere. They've got cool music playing in the background. It just felt epic is the only way to describe it. It was really, really cool. So whoever, props to the IAF um, events team, whoever came up with that and figured out a way to do it and present it, it made the finals at Worlds just feel that much more in, important and intense. Yeah, I, I agree with you, John. It's a, it's a shame that they didn't get the crowds right at the beginning of the Worlds because you know the media kind of wrote off Worlds. But I, I just published an article in Let's Run and the end, the Doha Worlds being up, being being ended up being pretty spectacular. I mean, the light show was unreal and i was wondering guys when they have like uh, there's like a blue line and it looked like it was above the ground like was that real or was that just on my tv no that was on the tv only so. no but I, I i didn't see a blue line either i heard something about holograms john did you see holograms that might have been tv or only but in the stadium it was unbelievable like they were blasting this stuff and i'm like where's this coming from is it built on the track because i'm like how are they shooting the lasers from the roof you, like it's not like you saw these lasers coming down you saw them just imposed on the track they had athletes faces it was super cool um i think they should have once they had that functionality they should have done more with it like when the little muhammad breaks the world record they should have i don't know if any field events going on at the same time but make sure that one isn't and then they immediately shoot like world record lasers off or especially with the relays at the end you could be shooting off you know like gold medal usa there's a lot more you could do it's sad there were not not many fans there for you know at least half the championship and even the last few days we're all excited about you know probably crowds that are just a little over twenty thousand, but filled up the full lower bowl but it showed like what can be done with these stadiums. I don't know if these light systems are exorbitantly expensive, but it was crazy nuts and cool. Yeah. The one thing, Weldon, you brought it up, the world record for Muhammad, that the, it was a great race to watch, obviously. And the stadium was packed that night because that was the same night as Mutaz Bashim won the high jump. The problem was no one in the stadium seemed to really know that she had broken the world record because 
it was sort of you know regular celebration for someone crossing the finish line. Then it got kind of muted, and then world record cross popped up maybe twenty seconds after the race on the timing next to the finish line, and then the crowd started freaking out. And it just would have been cool if, in the moment, people reacted to the time flashing up as opposed to being sort of having to be prompted to do it. That was my biggest uh, complaint watching at home. I thought the production, the TV production, was much better than I remember from other worlds. They did the split screen amazingly well. So, like, they were showing the high jump in the middle of the steeplechase. To, to watch a field event live is much more ex- it's much more exciting. They just see the high jump. Okay, he's still in it. He, he's on you know, that. But also not to miss the, the steeplechase. I mean, nothing's happening in three minutes in, but you still get to see it if there's a break or if anyone falls or anything like that. But my biggest complaint about the TV production uh, was they didn't have, like, the world record at the bottom of the screen. Uh, they used to, you know – 20 years ago, I remember them seeing the world, showing the world record like in every race at the bottom just in case it was broken. Maybe they got away from that just because it's rarely broken. But particularly in a race where there's any chance of world record, they should have it on there. I mean, maybe, yeah, I should know what the world record is. But it's just – it certainly helps to, to know what that is and sort of have it be put in perspective um, so, so you're not caught you know, off guard. It felt they were a little slow to announce it maybe in the stadium as well, the world record. And some of the sound, also, I think stadiums need to think more about the sound. Some places it was sort of hard to hear the the announcers, but I think if they flashed it up on the screen right away, the crowd would have cheered. Like, they don't know. It took about 25 seconds to put up a world record, and then everybody cheered. So, And if we're going to give criticisms now on things to improve, I think one of the biggest – well, I'll start with maybe it was transition to biggest losers because I can go there with that. One of the biggest losers was the 21st century. I mean, it was taking days for them to figure out appeals to for some of these races. Like this is the 21st century. Any appeal needs to be the race needs to be final within five minutes of the race ending. Like, come on, it's not that hard. You just have a video review of every race, everything. If somebody wants to file an appeal and alert the judges to something they can, and then there's five minutes to rule, and that's it. Like. People were getting medals the day after and then getting them taken back. And I mean, it was just nuts. And, and last world, we said the exact same thing. Like, is our sport going to be a modern sport and how it's presented? Then the rules need to reflect that. So all appeals need to be handled within about five minutes. Yet another win for Robert Johnson. I said right away when that hurdle race ended that they needed to rerun the race because that guy was going to medal. People were mocking me on the message board. And a day later, they apparently listened to me and at least gave him a medal. I would have given him silver. But before we get to the losers, and I know John has one in mind, how about just for the biggest winner, just the sport of track and field? I mean, that's what I put up in this article. It's like every single running event was really incredible. Like what was a dud? Like maybe the biggest dud of any running event, literally every event, 100 through the 10,000 on the track, sprints, distance, everything. Maybe the most, the boringest race was the women's 800. No, no, that wasn't boring. I would say the the two both two hundreds, both two hundreds were not very because we all knew Dina Asher Smith was going to win the two women's two hundred, the men's two hundred. Lyles, I, I think we were all expecting him to run faster. Okay, those races weren't great races, but they have great stories in the sense of Lyles is going to be a, a big star in the years to come, and Dina Asher Smith, British. I mean, she's a big British star, and they haven't had a sprint medal in thirty six years. So I think those are big stories. Like at literally every sprinting single running event had an amazing story behind it. And then if you look at just, you know, the, the field events, they were pretty amazing too. I mean, you had the greatest women's pole vault ever. The men's shot put. Oh, that was my other complaint. On the men's shot put, they didn't show the line for the for 
transposed on the screen for the longest throw. I mean, you, I think you had the 20 meter mark, so you could kind of tell if it was close, but I mean, obviously one centimeter, you're not gonna be able to tell, but greatest men's shot put ever. I mean, it was incredible. The men's long jump, best jump in 10 years. And yet the guy only made the final on his third jump in the preliminary round by one inch. Then he jumped two and a half feet farther than he did in the prelims to win it. I mean, it was just so such sick stuff. Uh, women's javelin from fourth to first in the final throw. I mean, all these things were absolutely incredible. So the biggest winner is our lovely sport of track and field. You still got it. We just need to present you well, and you'll be okay. John, biggest loser. I know you've got one. Let's hear it. Yep. And you picked for your biggest winner, you picked a men's 800 runner, Robert. I'm picking a women's 800 runner, RJ Wilson. I'm sorry. This was – I don't really know how to say it politely, but – I think you've got to call this kind of a choke job. She was the favorite. She was basically undefeated against XY, against uh, non-XY DSD women all year. Looks to be totally unstoppable. And she gets upset. And only she runs 158.8. Winning time was 158.0. Wilson's run 157 a few times this year. I don't think she really made any... I think she ran tactically pretty well. I don't think she made any huge mistakes, but... She was expected to win this race, and she didn't. She only got the bronze, which is what she got two years ago. The two women ahead of her in London weren't competing here. She's my biggest loser. Wow. Harsh. Get a medal, and John John rules you, labels you as a loser. But, um, yeah, I, I'm still trying to figure out what went wrong in that race. I think the first 200 was too fast. 26, right? You don't run 26-31. You run that more even. But – it is kind of hard. I'm going to be handing out grades to all the American mid D and distance runners. And I've already handed out of, I haven't published this yet, but I've handed out a couple of F's and I did not give AG an F. I thought it was a medal. I was, that was harsh, but I, I have given out a couple of F's and I guess that could be my, my, my biggest loser could be one of these people. Um, among my F's are Hannah green. Um, when you get a, when you win a diamond league meet right before worlds and then don't make the final, I know you're injured. That, that is not good. Colleen Quigley. You know, I, I know she really wanted to run, but it just it struck me wrong. And she waits the last minute. They can't get the alternate end, and then she's on the NBC broadcast talking about the races. Like uh, I don't know. Like I guess that I just thought you. What's the point of having an alternate if we're not going to get them out there? USA. It just shows you also the ineptitude of USATF. They don't really care about the third and fourth placers on the team. And to me, the sport that's very important. I, I treat everyone as that team is a Team USA member. And everyone should get the chance to opportunity at Worlds. She could have pulled out two or three days earlier. They could have gotten an alternate there. And then I, for me, if you want to go to could be biggest loser on the men, I think the only alpha I have for the Team USA is Clayton Murphy. I know making the 800 meter final is, is is not easy to do, but he did make the final. But then he he hasn't finished worse than fifth in any race all year, and he gets eighth in the final. And I, yeah, we can have the excuses that his coach was banned the night before. And then for some reason, he decided to switch hotels in the middle of the day. That seems like a, I would don't think that's a smart call by his agent. Like he says he didn't want to be bothered. Like that's going to be throw you out of your routine. But this is a guy that meddled in 2016. Um, I don't know. I, I expect him to do better than eighth place. Yeah, I, I, I kind of thought he was med- going to meddle going into the champs. I, I may have picked him for the bronze in the prediction contest. I certainly thought he had a good chance at it. And he didn't just get lost. He got... DFL, I mean, two seconds behind seventh place. It just, it was a bad race for Clayton. You know, he's run pretty solid all year. 
you could just got to chalk it up. And maybe the Salazar thing was a distraction. Obviously, it's not great when your coach gets banned for four years. You know, and you find about it the morning of the biggest race of your year. But obviously, a poor day for him. I don't think you know he's still young. He's got some good years ahead of him, but just a, a very bad race for him. So do you guys think that maybe Nike will start using Clayton Murphy as proof that Alberto Salazar's Nike origin project isn't doped? I mean, he's been running like horse crap since ever since Salazar took over for him. So maybe Salazar's band could actually help, help Murphy because he might regain his college form. Certainly has not improved in the NOP in my opinion. Well, okay. He hasn't improved his PR. I think saying he's run like horse crap is ridiculous. He won USA's last year. This year he ran 143. He got fifth in the Diamond League final. He was the runner-up at USA's behind Brazier. He was top five in five different Diamond Leagues. I mean, okay, he didn't win a medal, which is very hard to do in the 800, by the way. Uh, remember, all of the finalists from 2017, none of them made the final this time around in 2019. I think, no, he, he's run fine, but winning a medal is really hard to do, and he, you know, he hasn't got back to that level, but I don't think that's... I wouldn't say he's run poorly under Salazar. I guess 143 is pretty good, John. The event's pretty, pretty, you know, there's a lot of talent in it. And a lot of the extra talent wasn't even on, even at Worlds in, in good shape, career and Amos. Imagine that they were there. So. Well, I'm glad no one has mentioned my biggest loser. I assume this guy got an F as well, but maybe not. Michael Norman, his first race of the year, he ran 43-45 for 400 meters. That is still the fastest 400 meters of the year. And I wonder what we said at the time, whether he'd win the world to break the world record. I assume we thought he'd at least do one of those. He never runs any faster, doesn't even make the final, and then isn't to like slap in the face even more. Then it's so bad, they leave him off the relay. So if you told me at the start of year Michael Norner would leave Doha with no medals, I would just find it hard to believe. If, you know, he was healthy. He had, he's also, part of the problem with Michael is there may be some injury or something, but he doesn't want to talk about it. Well, I don't know. People just, you, you need to talk about it. The good thing for Michael Norman is, and I think him and Noah Lyles and whatever, they can sort of be the face of Tokyo. They're both so young, you know, even like Eugene 2021, LA 2028, like they'll still be around then. I think you can be a good 400 meter runner, you know, in 2028. So he balances back next year in Tokyo. Everybody forgets this, but just a terrible world championships for him. Yeah, the Norman thing is so strange to me because he said it's this mysterious issue. He he hasn't even he, he's loath to even call it an injury, but it seems like it's a lower body issue of some sort. And he said he he had it going into USA's, and he considered even withdrawing. It wasn't until he warmed up for the four hundred that he decided to do it. And then he runs forty four, forty four, and then forty three seventy nine in the final at USA's. He still runs really well. He wins the Diamond League. Uh, final in 44-26, beat Fred Curley there. And then he runs 45 point, you know, 45-00 and 45-94 in his two rounds in Doha. He can run, but he said he didn't want to, you know, about 60 meters into his semifinal in Doha, he felt something, he didn't want to risk it. It's just, it's very odd to me that he isn't giving this information and his results, he still run well with it. So, Sometimes it affects him more than other times. It just seems like a very strange issue to me. Yeah, I agree. If it's I, I, the way the way, and the stranger it's described, I'm thinking like, what is it? Something with a private part? Like, is it bathroom related? Like, I don't know. I mean, I, as these athletes say, hey, you know, we have a right to pr- our medical privacy, but 
the, people have wild conspiracy theories if you don't tell us, you know, give us some hint, some hint of the truth. Rojo, biggest loser for you. I think I did. I think I said Colleen Quigley. It, it, it threw me wrong. I mean, that's probably a little harsh on her, but just, I guess the loser would be, you know, the alternate. Marissa Howard. Yeah. Right. Oh, actually, so while we're on the topic of winners and losers, wanted to do a little checkup here on the Bauman Track Club. They were a hot topic of discussion for the last few months based on their racing strategy or that more accurately, their strategy not to race in between USA's and the World Championships. So I figure I would run down their results quickly at Worlds and see, you know, was this a good strategy? And here, so here we got, we've got Centrowitz. He gets eighth in the 1500, runs 332. Mohamed, bronze in the 5K, sixth in the 10K. He breaks 27 for the first time. Lopez Lemong, seventh in the 10K, 2704. That's a 26 second personal best. Shelby Houlihan, fourth in the 1500, smashes the American record with a 354. Carissa Schweizer, ninth in the 5K, huge personal best, both in the prelims and the in the final. And she runs 1445, fifth American ever. Marielle Hall, eighth place in the 10K, 3105. That's a 32 second personal best. Then you've got Courtney Frerich, sixth in the steeple final, 9-11, and Quigley DNS in the steeple. Now, aside from the Quigley thing, she was injured, so I'm not going to recommend someone who's, injury, who's, who's injured should be racing a bunch. Uh, really, the only – those outstanding results for almost everyone. I would say Centrowitz and Frerich's were the two disappointments there. Uh, Centrowitz only eighth in the 15, and then Frerich's only getting sixth in the steeple. But everyone else pretty much ran out of their minds. So – I think you can say the the strategy of going all in for Worlds, yeah, it produced some great performances. But here's the other problem: out of that entire group, only one person medaled. It's very you can have a successful race at Worlds without medaling. But I guess two things I think of: one, is it worth throwing away all of these races to go to Worlds and then you know you come away with a fast time and a great performance, but not a medal? And two, the more I think of it, though, is like, well, do these people? What do we? Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm softening on my stance, but like, uh, what are they going to remember a few years from now? Going to like run the Birmingham Diamond League or running the Birmingham Final or going out and running a huge personal best or an American record in the World Championship Final? They're probably only going to remember the latter. So I can kind of more I think of it. I think I kind of understand the approach a bit more. Yes, John. You don't remember what hep cross country weeks you ran in the regular season. You remember heps. You know, Ivy League championships. I think John owns Mr. Jerry Shoemaker an apology. I'll figure out his phone number, text it to you, John. And five of the seven Bowerman athletes PR at Worlds. That's a pretty high success rate. Do you think there's any coach in the entire World Championships at a higher ratio than that? You know, the, the real question is, I mean, what could they have done to, to – I mean, obviously, which of those really could have medaled? Maria Hall, no chance. Schweizer PR'd in both the semis and final, no chance. Houlihan – I mean, yeah, she could have medaled. I expected her to medal, but she ran 354. Like, are we supposed to be upset with that? If she had actually run the 5,000, I think she would have medaled. I think she would have beaten Coco probably, maybe. Um, Lamong, I mean, 2704. Like, do we realize how good those 10,000 meter runners are? Like, the second half, I, originally in our recap, I said it was 1324. The second half by the winner was 1314. There aren't that many Americans that can run 1314 flat out, let alone in the second half of a 10K. And then Mohamed obviously did medal. So in twenty six fifty nine in the second race, but yeah, John, it sucks for the fans. But I think Frerichs and Frerichs and Centro were the two guys, two athletes who could have medaled and, and didn't. Right. 
I mean, Houlihan could have medal, but she runs three fifty four ninety nine and gets crushes the American record. So she she's got something to take home. But I think it's interesting in the fifteen hundred people on the circuit race a lot more. Same thing with the steeple, and maybe there's in those events there is some advantage to just racing just to get used to it. I don't know. I think maybe some of the longer distance events racing is as important. It's really just more about fitness. But in the fifteen hundred, getting used to the pace. Central maybe wasn't re- used to that pace. He essentially tried to go out and run close to 3.30 and just faded. And Frerichs kind of said the same thing. Like, well, do you regret not racing more? And her take was, well, maybe I should have gone – maybe I should race more. But she also said, well, maybe just that when I did race at pre, I should have gone out harder. So I was used to the faster pace. So I think those two and those two events – Maybe, you know, racing's a little bit more important. If, you know, I assume if Schumacher coached an 800-meter runner, he'd have him race a little bit more just because you need you need rounds on your legs. You need the experience of racing. It's just not about fitness. And some of the longer distance stuff, it's more just about fitness. I agree with you, except – and I actually – in my in my unpublished piece on the on the grades, when I give – when I give Centro his grade, which I think was a C-, um, I give him unsolicited free coaching advice from yours truly – I actually think, though, with Centro, I, I said, like, look, the strength work he did this year to get in 13 flat shape is going to pay dividends. It's going to pay dividends probably next year. Sometimes you get the added strength, and you can't quite handle it for the races. I mean, obviously, he did in the 5,000, but you, you're right. Well, to run fast in the 1,500, sometimes you've got to run 1,500s. you got to do the speed work. So I was like, look, stay in this base phase. Keep this fitness up through the early season, and then you need to race some 1,500s to get that speed to go out and. You know, he went out in 55.7. He tried to go out hard, basically, you know, and if he runs 331, he could have gotten the silver. But he backed off there on the second lap and ran 153. And I was trying to think to myself, like, when he ran his PR, like, how hard did he go out? So I went back and looked today at the, I think it was the 2014 Monaco or 2015 Monaco, something like that. His first lap was almost identical to this World Championships, 55.7. In Monaco, he hit 800 faster. He ran like 152, or he was like 153 here. So he just probably wasn't used to that. Probably had second. There's not a pack to run with, though. Also, people backed off. So he, he was in a, in a tougher spot there. So, But, well, to sort of counter your argument about needing a lot of races, guess who got the silver medal and he barely raced at all? McCluffy. I wouldn't say he barely raced at all. He, I mean, he started his season late, but... I I, I want to say he had, didn't he have like six races coming into Worlds or something? He has one, two, three, four, four eight hundreds and two fifteen hundreds between July and September, th- July sixteenth and September third. I wouldn't say he barely raced at all, Robert. I stand corrected. Yeah, it happens. But one thing I, I'm curious about this men's fifteen hundred. So I, I still can't wrap my brain around this. The winning time, Timothy Chariot, three twenty nine twenty six, an outstanding front running display. But what's crazy to me is he was essentially offering himself up as a pacemaker for the entire field to follow along. Ronald Quemoy was really the only guy who who chose to follow him. And yet no one else, he turned the World Championship final into a time trial. All these guys are peaked to the max. You know, they're in they sh- theoretically the best shape of the year. And no one else can run under 331, which, I don't know, maybe it was just it was the third race in four days, but it was kind of weird. I know most of these guys can probably run I th- I just assumed there would be more than one guy in a time trial style final that could break three thirty or r- break three thirty one. Do you guys have any theories on this? Yeah, I mean, I think you need, we need to look individually at these people. I mean, McCluffy's seasonal best, so that was pretty good for him. 
where he is. Lewandowski, national record. I mean, I think 331 is pretty good for a 1,500-meter guy. The, the big surprise was Ingebrigtsen, you know. And, you know, in, in hindsight, it's easy to say, look, those guys retired from the 5,000. That backfired, kind of like it backfired on Clayton Murphy a couple of years ago at USA's to go for the double. Um, it, it reminds me, I was actually watching the Astros play last night in baseball when Justin Verlander was pitching on three days rest. But they were actually they actually kind of predicted his downfall before it happened. They're like, well, let's look for his command. His command was clearly off in the first inning. But if you're looking at this, if you were discussing this 1,500-meter final and you said, what are we going to look for here? I mean, the one brother, Philip didn't even make the final. That's very surprising that the, the medalist from three years ago didn't make the final. That should have been the first clink in the matter. Was, hey, something might be wrong with Ingebrigtsen this year. So fourth, while a disappointment for him, yeah, that was the biggest surprise there. The other guys, John, I mean, Whiteman ran a huge PR. Kerr ran a huge PR for fifth and sixth. Kamoy, 332 for what he'd done this year was, was pretty good. Centrowitz, that was disappointing. If you told me that he had only run 332-8 when he just ran 13 flat, I was surprised by that. But then the, the eight ninth placer did run a national record. So a lot of these guys, and, and Craig Ingles, I mean, he ran 334. His PR is 334. Yeah, but he said he thought he was in 330 shape coming in. I mean, Craig didn't run well in that race. I know he was close to PR, but I think we expected more, right? Well, he didn't run well to the lofty expectations that you guys were pumping up all year. You guys pretty much handed him like a silver or gold medal, and you know he ended up. I, I didn't. When I look at those results, you know people are also making fun now of the JV term. The JV guys, you know Josh Kerr and these guys beat Ingles. I view Josh Kerr as a better runner than Craig Ingles. He was better than him in college, or, or at least did John. How much did they overlap? Like Ingles' senior year was 2017. Josh Kerr smoked him at NCAA's. Yes, someone on that thread is complaining. We're also supposed to say Josh Kerr of the Brooks Beast because they were complaining that. You know, the beasts aren't getting any attention. He's introduced as being from New Mexico. They often don't introduce what club somebody runs for. They don't say Ginny Simpson of New Balance. And also, the JV term, Josh Kerr was never JV. We said if you're on Worlds, you're on the A team. So, varsity. So, Josh Kerr is definitely varsity. And with a PB in the final, I mean, he was kind of, he wasn't pissed afterwards. But we're like, Josh, you know, 332 PB. And he's like, yeah, but I wanted more, man. I wanted a medal. It was there for the taking. And I was like, whoa. And I was like, hey, man, If I, before the season, I said, World Championship final, you run 332 PB. You know, he does a backflip and takes that for sure. So I don't know. Josh Coe, we got to remember how talented that guy is. That guy is a freshman in New Mexico, showed up and rocked Ed Cesarek's world at NCAA indoors, destroyed him in the mile. Now, granted, Cesarek was tripling at that meet, but that was a ridiculous performance by Coe at that meet. And I was like, he was only 19 years old at the time. I thought from that moment, I was like, this guy could medal at Worlds one day. And he didn't quite medal, you know, he's sixth place. So he wasn't there yet, but he's still only 22 years old, I think. And he just turned 22 on October 8th. So I, I think this guy could medal one day. But he beat JV team member Edward Cheserick. Or does Cheserick get elevated to the varsity because he's an, he had a road 5K world record at some point? Actually, I see, I see Cheserick... Um, posters up around here in new york city they'll be on like um are there still phone booths i swear there's like little phone little things that were phones used to be it'll be like Ed, edward cheserick 5k world record holder really they're touting him as a 5k world record holder that's absurd because the real what did he run like 1330 or something and the fastest road time ever is 13 flat it just happened to be before the iwf recognized it and a road record is also like not quite as legit of a 5k as yeah 1329 that, that's kind of ridiculous 
All right, guys, let's give some love to the Brooks Beast because, and this is a nice segue into the Berto Salazar doping scandal. I really think, John, you read the entire 132 pages of the Salazar thing on the plane back. And we're going to have a lot more over this over the last next week or two because people are still digesting it. To me, the details matter. I mean, we know that there's a ban. People are saying it's a technicality. But I think sometimes the big picture, Walden did a good job this last week of, of, of sort of trying to put this in all perspective. But to me, the biggest untold story is Danny Mackey of the Brooks Beast. He said, it sounds like that he was the initial whistle. This has not really been reported, folks. He was the initial whistleblower. He was just out of college, I think, working in the Nike lab as a scientist. He comes across these blood values of these runners that show really high testosterone levels that he thought were weird. He testifies under oath in the arbitration, apparently, that he went to Dr. Mary, who is now deceased, um, the head of Nike lab, and says, what's up with this? And he says, well, all of Salazar's guys are, you know, athletes are on testosterone and thyroid. He's like, you should get on it too. He said, well, I can't. Wouldn't that be illegal? He said, no, they don't get busted. And that's like a footnote in this thing. So listen to what's being said here. The head of the, according to Danny Mackey, the head of the Nike lab told him that testosterone, Alberto Salazar's athletes were on testosterone. Now, maybe Salazar will say that his testo boost and his Nike thing. I've been told that that's not what happened, that there was a differentiation between prescription testosterone and something called testo boost. So we need to confirm that with Danny. Danny, if you're listening to this podcast, we'll be reaching out to you. We want to hear the stories. But basically, he went and testified. When that ProPublica story came out, <clears throat> The Nike employees must have realized it was Mackie because some of the based on some of the things and the access to the lab values and stuff like that, it could have been no one else by Mackie. Mackie's already left. He's he's he he felt uncomfortable. He's gone to Brooks. Mackie's life was then, according to a police report, threatened. John, you broke this story. So at Nike, like this guy goes, he sees something he doesn't like. He goes to USADA. And then his life is threatened by another by the head, John Capriotti, the head of Nike Sports. Now, now I know Nike hired lawyers, and they said it didn't happen because they found four people who said it didn't happen. Four people who all work for Nike. So, this to me is an unbelievable story. You know, we're, we're hearing how Nike would never stand for any of this doping and none of this crap, but they'll stand for employees threatening the life of an ex-employee. They'll stand for. Alberto Salazar telling Kara Goucher to take prescription drugs that she doesn't have prescription for. Like at a minimum, there could be huge lawsuits against Nike for some of this crap. Whether you think he violated anti-doping rules or not, some of this stuff is just not acceptable corporate behavior, period. Yeah, Robert, the, the Mackie thing you bring up is very interesting. And I just, for our readers, for full accuracy's sake, just want to read that excerpt of the Salazar decision. It's paragraph 344. And it says, Danny Mackey testified that while he was working at the Nike lab in 2008 and Dr. Meyer suggested that he go see Dr. Brown, Dr. Jeffrey Brown, who was just banned for four years along with Salazar, and that he take thyroid and testosterone therapy, whereupon Mr. Mackey asked him for more details. So asked him, Dr. Meyer. Mackey was concerned about this suggestion because he was a competitive athlete. Dr. Meyer, according to Mr. Mackey, said, this is what Alberto Salazar's athletes do and they haven't got gotten caught you'll be okay i think the phrasing there the use of the term gotten caught is kind of interesting to me because it implies that they're doing something illegal now taking thyroid medication isn't illegal if you've been prescribed it but you know testosterone if as you say robert it's actual testosterone and not some sort of testosterone improving therapy or boosting therapy or something like that i don't know it's sort of in the weeds on that one 
But I think that is a very interesting sort of uh, detail to emerge from this whole decision. John, most people when they read haven't gotten caught taking testosterone are going to assume that that means something illegal against doping rules, not that it's some legal supplement like Testo Boost. So we're supposed to bend over backwards and assume something's you know, legal or legal or whatever. I think, you know, I thought it was interesting because the arbitrators, we're going to, each week we'll probably be talking about this for a few weeks. They sort of went over backwards to say, oh, Alberto Salazar, you know, appears to go into the utmost uh, attempt to follow the rules. But the Danny Mackey testimony doesn't sound like a guy who, someone following the rules. Someone who tells their athletes misleading and false information so they don't get caught doesn't sound like someone trying to follow the rules. So I thought there was just some things that didn't square right. You know, I mean, we could talk about this for for a full hour, but we got a lot more to talk about. But also, hey, one more thing. And then biggest loser at the World Championships probably was Alberto Salazar. Last week, we were a little bit critical of USADA for releasing the decision in the middle of the world's. And actually, now I'm kind of glad they did it. I mean, maybe the middle didn't need to happen, but as somebody said, it needed to be out before the world. So when the athletes did that, people could sort of ask the questions because there's so much gray area around Alberto, even at the very least. Let's say this decision did not come out. We would see Hassan do what she did. And people, what everyone who follows the sport would be thinking was like, is this real? So in some ways, it was good that the decision was out and we could have sort of ask our questions. Okay. I want to apologize to you, Sada. Last week we were critical of them for the releasing in the middle of worlds. And I take that all back. I, this week I listened to a podcast by the clean sport initiative. I think they have like a weekly podcast and I think Kara Goucher, maybe one of the co-hosts. I'm not really sure. Anyways, this week she was actually interviewed by the other host with Adam Goucher. It was very fascinating. It's about 70 minutes, a lot of inf- interesting information there. And she talked about the timing of this and, and actually about some of the criticisms that you know people got for, for when it was all released. And I, I thought, first of all, she made an amazing point. She's like, look, well, first, two points, really. One was when this is supposed to come out. They thought she was initially told it would definitely come out in 2018, this decision by the arbitrators. They thought maybe as early as August of 2018. Then it got pushed back to early 2009, then April, then May, then June, then July, then back and back and back. So, you know, it just kept being pushed back by the Nike lawyers, it sounded like. There was like nine Nike lawyers, she said, when she testified before the arbitrators. They spent probably millions of dollars on, on the legal defense of Dr. Brown and, and Alberto Salazar. Just a huge, huge um, legal war here. But so it was pushed back. And she's like, imagine if the award comes – they don't decide when – and then she said the USAD requested – they told the arbitrators it should not come out during Worlds. And the, they tried to get it before Worlds. And didn't. And she said, if you actually look at the date of the of the ban, the ban is like the twenty third. It's before Worlds. But for some reason, the actual report didn't come out until after Worlds. I mean, in the middle of Worlds. So, anyways, no, that was Brown's ban, Robert Salazar's ban began on September thirtieth. Okay, but she's like, imagine that the that the arbitrators rule, and then USAT sits on it. And then we find out a week or two later that they didn't announce it. People would think that it was a conspiracy theory so that Alberto Salazar could coach his athletes at Worlds and he coaches the Safa Hassan to this amazing double. People would have, people just like to complain. And, and I realize this now. Hey, the arbitrators released it that day. You released it. What was interesting to me was on this podcast was one of the questions was, well, what happens if the award had gone, you know, if the arbitrators had ruled the other way? She claims that. Adam and her were not allowed to talk about this, not allowed to talk about the, that there was charges against Alberto, that they would have never been allowed to say anything. Now, my take on this is 
that seems weird. Like it's a factual matter that they were charged and that they testify. Why can't you test? You know, why couldn't you say that there was a charge? I assume if I was Alberto and I was cleared, I would release the fact I would release the full arbitrator's award. I'd say, Hey, they charged me and they disagreed. Then maybe you don't want the specifics, but I would think they would give me closure. Like, what do you guys think? If you're Alberto and you win even on a technicality and there's some damning things by Danny Mackey in there, you release it or you just act like it never happened. I don't know, because the last few years, we were sort of living in that zone where Salazar, everyone kind of assumed the investigation was kind of over, but USADA hadn't formally closed it. And I think people were sort of moving on. But I guess, no, I, I guess I probably would have released it because everyone still says, hey, that group's under investigation. Hey, there's all these things. And yeah, if you come out and say, yep, they, I was under investigation. They looked into it. They couldn't find anything. I'm good. And here's why. I think you probably, at the very least, you come out and say, hey, they." you can ask USADA. They closed this investigation. It's over. I won. Um, but I don't know if I'd want to release the entire, all the details of the stuff he did because some of the stuff in there is pretty sketchy. I wish we just had like a truth ceremony. One of the things she hinted at was she's like, do you not think that the members of the Bowerman Track Club are happy about this? I mean, they. she basically, she was part of the Bowerman Track Club. She knows that a lot of those members had private suspicions about Alberto's group. They used to kind of be one combined group, but they're not going to say anything because they work for Nike. There's so many people that, that can't speak the world because, you know, I, I would love to hear what Alan Webb says, thanks on the record about the about, about Alberto Salazar's group. But Alan's trying to work, work his way at the coaching ranks. He'd be a fool to say anything that was negative against Nike because he could come back to, to you know, to haunt him. I talked to Steve Magnus about this in the sense of, I said, Steve, you know, hey, like, do you ever apply for other jobs? He said he's really happy at Houston, but when he has an interview with other jobs, the ADs always say, hey, so if you saw, you know, if you saw something bad going on here, would you go to the press? So they're afraid that someone like that would, would, would you know, ADs, once you cover up their, tra- their, their, their NCAA violations, they don't want you going to the press and being honest about it. So there is a personal cost to speaking up against what you view as wrongdoing. And that was one of the things I posted on, on the message board. It's like, someone's like, you know, if a pro- I do kind of agree with this idea. If a prosecutor goes at you and brings all everything they got against you, they can generally find you making some mistake and get you on something. That's true. But I was like, it's not like USADGA just invented out of thin air. Oh, let's go after Alberto Salazar. Think about all the people that were closely connected to that group that independently of themselves went to USADA and said, something's going on here. Danny Mackey, Kara Goucher, um, Steve Magnus, we know those three. I, th- I think the masseuse as well. Well, help me out with his name. And it sounds like Dathan Ritzenheim also testified against him because he was happy with the decision. John Steiner was the masseuse. Yeah, John Steiner. One thing you mentioned though, Robert, about the Bauman Track Club and you know their reaction to this. So we we spoke to some of the Bauman members and in Doha, and neither of them were, you know, Shelby Houlihan and Matthew Centrowitz. I think were the ones I spoke to about it. And neither of them were saying like, oh, this is a great day for clean sport or whatever, especially Centro used to be a part of the group. But some of the other athletes, Stanley Kabene, who was sponsored by Nike, said we shouldn't be having coaches like those in track and field. And he said basically if they find out what if what they find out is true, it's good for our sport. And then Andy Bayer, who was a former member of the Bowman Track Club, said, you know, we need to get drug treats out of the sport. So I'm glad it came to the surface. And he said... He's not really surprised because he said, I was in a group, the Bowman Track Club, that definitely had suspicions before. And I think he meant the suspicions, you know, were about Salazar. And he said, but it's hard to say until something comes out. And I don't believe every athlete in that group is dirty for sure. 
but we need to get drug sheets out of the sport. And he's sponsored by Nike as well. So I think that was as close as we came to any Nike sponsored athletes sort of um, celebrating the, this suspension. One last thing about the Salazar thing. Kara talked, uh, one of the biggest questions people have is like, well, how could you be part of the group? You, you know, basically they don't understand the logic of, she says she was part of this group for seven years. She ran her best times during that time. She says she didn't dope, but then couldn't it also be possible that Rupp didn't dope? And sure, that is possible, I guess. But she was saying, like, you know, like, look, there was inner different rings of the group. And the innermost ring by far was Alberto and Galen from start to finish. Then Mo Farah came in and he was in there. And that was like an impenetrable, impenetrable bond and no one else was there. Then there was a really close group where Ritz and Kara were sort of the next level. And then outside of that was like everybody else. And then Adam Goucher was like Pluto or something like way far away. So it was like inner things. And she's, she basically says that she never – um, saw anything that was over the line. And then she says she did see something twice, I think April of 2011, and then Doha Worlds, I think she's, or is that Doha, whatever, she said she saw something. It sounds like those were the IV bags that everyone's talked about. And this just reminds me of so many stories. I mean, I remember someone saying they, they were dog sitting for an NLP team member and, they, and the dog got into the trash and there was like just tons of IV bags there as well as syringes. I wish I remember this. If you know what I'm talking about. making this up. That's, no, no. that's real? Oh, yeah. I've heard this story. I actually mentioned to Steve Magnus. He said, I said, have you, Steve, have you heard this? He said, yeah, I've heard this. I can't remember who it was. So if you were the dog sitter for the NLP team member, I don't want to say, I know what you know TPP team member was. It was a 1500 meter runner. If you were the dog sitter and you saw the syringes or the bags or whatever in the trash, once the dog get in, please email me, Robert at let's run, Robert at let's run.com. And we'll have you that story next week. But guys, we got still Chicago and Ineos challenge. What should we get to first? One more thing on this Nike thing. I think each week we should just sort of bring up something to talk about. But when I was getting on my flight on Monday morning, essentially I slept for 45 minutes because I wasted my time and watched the Dallas Cowboys game after the Worlds. But I was reading some stuff, and I just want to point this out now because I still think maybe we can cast blame at Nike all along. But And this is tied into Worlds. But Safan Hassan was upset that people were questioning her. And I loved her response, test me every day. But the reason she shouldn't blame the media and fans for questioning her, she should blame Nike and her former coach. Because all along, they had multiple instances to stand up for clean sport, and they never did. They stood up for, at the very, at the, the best reading, what they stood up for is if you can push it to the absolute limit and get away with it and take a pill that no one else has and win because of that, you do it. And for so many people, that's not what sport's about, even if it's technically legal. And that's why so many athletes were just blasting this guy. Because I think a lot of them think something else was going on. But at the very least, sport, that's not what sport is them. It's not about win at all costs. Win because you have a pill or a shoe that someone else doesn't have. But so, and then it's, I thought it was weird all along that Mark Parker's email was in here. But guys, I want, I want to read this email to you guys from Mark Parker, just because I think the, the wording is just so weird. Um, Mark Parker responded to Dr. Brown saying, quote, it will be interesting to determine the minimal amount of topical male hormone required to create a positive test. Who writes like that? That's the weirdest language I've ever seen. I have no idea what it means, but I just, that was my one thought on like no sleep on Doha getting on the plane. It's like, that's a really weird email. At the, at the worst, I guess at the best, it's just bad business judgment for the CEO of Nike to be involved on doping experiments. 
But I don't know. I just thought the language was weird. I don't, people don't write like that. I got to think more about what that means. Well, are you trying to imply that it's all an elaborate cover-up? Like they knew that this was an experiment for something else? I mean, Adam Goucher goes crazy. He's like, if you think that was done to figure out what actually would sabotage them, you're an idiot. He went off on the podcast about that. But or I think it could be just some smart CEO realizing that this email be maybe read. Maybe he was surprised that he got the email and was trying to cover his ass to act like to just to make it clear in the record that he was, of course, talking about. Yeah, it's just not natural language. So if he specifically wrote that reason for a reason, and maybe it's innocent, like you said. Or I guess the other one, or the other alternative is weird. But like I can spot fake posts on the message boards all the time. I'm surprised when I first read this, but I guess when I first read it, it was 4 a.m. in Doha you know, in the middle of the world when this news broke. So just kind of crazy language. If any linguists out there want to email me and tell me what they think, feel free. Okay, guys. Yeah, well, guys, one other concern I have is uh, where does this leave our weekly Alberto Salazar segment? If he's going to be banned for the next four years, we might have trouble. Uh, we might have to kill that in a few months. But plenty of stuff more to discuss on that. But let's move on to the Chicago Marathon taking place this Sunday. Certainly no one will be talking about Alberto Salazar in that race when uh, the last two champions of that race, Mo Farah and Galen Rupp, are squaring off. It's also Galen Rupp's first marathon since he underwent Achilles surgery last fall. Uh, the, you know, Mo Farah, who knows, maybe someone, We is there? has there been a robbery of his Flagstaff apartment while he's been training out there? Maybe there's something he wants to talk about in the press conference this week. Should be a very interesting race this weekend. Yeah, I mean, Chicago is going to be great anyway because – the men's field's pretty stacked, but now with the whole Alberto thing, it's like the circus continues on for another week. I mean, it's just like straight from worlds to Chicago. It doesn't get any better than this. Who knows? Maybe the like general running world at large will really be into the Ilya Kipchoge thing. And that's where their attention is. But for us, it's like, Oh my gosh, Chicago is so great now. Well, yeah, I think someone actually, when the Salazar story broke, I think, Maybe it was in the message boards or a text I received, but someone was basically like, this is Christmas for Let's Run.com. So I don't know. Maybe this is uh, New Year's now or something like that. But it's going to be, it'll obviously be a major storyline, but we do have a race uh, to discuss. So I think we should discuss it. And, so, you know, I, I, the biggest, most interesting question to me, and there's obviously going to be a great race for the win. You've got Lawrence Toronto, the Boston champ. You've got Mo Farah, who's the defending champ in Chicago. Dixon Chumbers won in Chicago before. You've got a couple other two or four Ethiopians in there. But what's most interesting to me is Galen Rupp has not raced at all since his Achilles surgery almost one year ago. And he almost always does a tune-up half marathon or some sort of race before his marathons. He hasn't done that this time around. So we don't know what Galen Rupp we're getting, assuming he's... And also, Galen Rupp, for the last two weeks of his build-up, has not been allowed to be coached by Alberto Salazar, who has coached him since he was a high schooler in 2002. So Rupp and how he runs here and his future and who's going to coach him moving forward. I mean, Alberto is essentially dictated. It seems like Alberto's dictated every running related decision of Galen's life. He, he, sometimes he seems like a robot who Salazar just has control of in terms of what he train, where he trains and what he does and what he eats and where he sleeps and all that stuff. It's just fascinating, the whole Rupp storyline, everything about Rupp in this race. Yeah, I, I think that there's two ways to look at this, John. You know, and it's kind of like when you went, we were analyzing the Ingebrigtsons beforehand. To me, this can go one of two ways. One, I'd say my biggest impression is, well, you would think there's there's two really contrasting things here with Rupp. Well, three, if you throw in Salazar. 
He had this. Think about how good he was before he had this surgery. He has this surgery. Imagine if he's running like in pain all the time, and he has this surgery. He could be at a whole nother level. I mean, he could be so good. Just I mean, not that he wasn't already unbeatable at the U.S. level at the marathon, but you would kind of expect him to be even better. To be honest, given the fact that it's hard to run with Achilles pain, but the fact that he hasn't raced at all to me is is a major red flag. Like now he hasn't dropped out, but remember, Hase didn't drop out until the day before or two before some of these races. So th- those are really contrasting thing. And I think it's big, you know, m- moving forward. Surgery is a big deal. We always just assume it always goes well in modern medicine, but that's not always the case. So I really want to see how he looks. Is he better than before? Worse than before? It seems like it'd be one of the two. I guess he could be the same. As for who's coaching him, I'd bet my life that he's received contact from Salazar since the ban. You, you don't think that there's been an email or a text or something? I mean, and I don't really have a problem with that. I mean, what is he supposed to do? Like, uh, there's some grace period to me would be appropriate. Taper down for the next two weeks. Or maybe he's got – it's not hard to figure out how to taper anyways. But um, that's the big thing with Rupp. I, I, I just – what do you think, John? Are we going to get a, a new and improved Rupp, the same Rupp, or worse Rupp? I expect about the same. I, I think expecting him to be new and improved, I mean, he's been running at a high level for, for over a decade. And – you know, he, obviously his body was, his Achilles was worn down to the point where he needed surgery on it. He's 33 years old. You can obviously be a good marathoner well into your 30s. But yeah, the, I think the not racing thing, it scares me a little because, and he also had this thing, maybe I'm reading way too much into this, but they had this YouTube series, the, the Nike Oregon Project. They came out with this video called Rebuilding Rup. And it seemed when they came out with it a few months ago, I think it was in April or so, that it was going to be a multi-part series showing how he's progressing and how he's improving and how he's you know going to come back and be better than he was before. And they just never came out with anything else beyond the first episode. So again, maybe we're reading too much into it. I My guess, if he makes the start line, I think he'll be about the same as he was before. But I think that's what's interesting about this race is we don't really know until it happens. That's an interesting thing you know, qualifier, if he makes the start line, I think there's some chance he doesn't run it. I don't think he will be as good. He didn't run a run up lead up race. I just don't think he's going to be as good, but maybe if that's the case, then he doesn't start it. But then if he doesn't start it, the Olympic marathon trials get a lot more interesting. And also I feel like he, Alberto and him have worked together since more than half of Galen's life. I mean, Galen's really never had a run, another running coach. So, I, yeah, I feel like they should be allowed, like, in their fringe, not allowed to speak. Like, where do you draw the line on what's allowed and what's not? I was sort of surprised when um, Kajelcha, after the 10K, uh, Yumif Kajelcha was runner-up in the 10K, he's coached by Alberto Salazar, or was coached by Alberto Salazar. And we were like, hey, what did Salazar say to you after he got banned? And Kajelcha's like, well, I didn't see him again. Like, he just left. And I, I'm just like common decency to me says like you say hey man i'm sorry I'm, you know i'm out of here pete's gonna coach you da, da, da. i don't know i just if there's a human element all of this i would have no problem if gail and rupp and alberto still want to be friends or whatever but it's a, just officially he he can't be the coach that's fine well they, they can still be friends i thought y'all caught somebody in one of those interviews and they had an admission that he had talked to them i read one of your emails interviews really cool finally Hassan said that that she spoke to him on 
the Tuesday in Doha, which was October 1st. And the band had been announced at like 3 a.m. on Tuesday. And she met with Salazar, I think. And I don't know. I Again, I give them some leeway on that. Like, yes, okay, that's probably against the rules. But if she's just finding it out this morning and then suddenly they say you can't have any contact at all to this guy and you're preparing for the, you know, in the middle of the world championships, I can kind of understand that. But yes, it did appear that she had contact with him in a coaching capacity after the ban was announced by her own admission. Yeah. But one last thing about this, you know, this reminded me of the Nike thing. And did I talk about Kira's reaction to Mark Parker's email? No. Well, she said that she was most disappointed by that. She thought that the reaction from the athletes in Salazar were very standard and what she would expect, you know, your, your typical statements. But she was most disappointed by the email that Mark Parker sent to the employees at Nike where he said, we would never stand for doping, always do the right thing. And, you know, it's like Nike, I don't know. They, they, she was like, how can they be doing that? They were sending athletes to Salazar. Sure. You're defending him, but he was charged with a crime. He was already being charged and they sent their top athletes in the world, Kajelcha and Hassan to him, even though he'd already been charged. She, you know, you know, she didn't use this analogy, but it's like if someone's accused of sexual abuse, you don't send minors to their care. I mean, there's nothing bigger in, in the sport of track and field than facing a doping ban as a coach. And yet you're still allowing your top athletes to go there. And now their names are forever tarnished, rightly or wrongly, because of their association, assuming this ban you know, holds. And it, I thought it was a really, really good point in the sense of, you know, like you wouldn't do this in any other corporate, like if someone's charged with a crime or whatever, you, you wouldn't act this way. They obviously just don't care. And people are like, if it was any other coach, if it wasn't, his name wasn't Alberto Salazar and he wasn't longtime buddies with Phil Knight, this would not be happening, I don't think. Yeah, I thought it was crazy they'd still be sending people or there was no punishment for Salazar. It seems to me one, a huge legal liability. Huge. Because at this point, it had already been established by the BBC ProPublica report that at the very least, although maybe not doping violations, that Alberto Salazar was violating prescription drug laws in the United States. And like giving an athlete prescriptions that aren't his. That just seems like a lawsuit waiting to happen. You know, there's now reports that Steve Magnus, and this maybe really goes back more to Dr. Brown, and this is even before the NLP, but like he's like, I don't, I don't, don't think I really needed this thyroid stuff and I was misdiagnosed. And that's a little bit different. You can argue the doctor didn't get it right, but like a non-medical professional giving out prescription drugs that aren't prescribed, and this is all known by Nike, and they still keep recommending people to this guy? Like... I'm surprised that the some of the um, you know trial lawyers haven't lined up here. All right, I'm going to steer this back to Chicago because somehow we got sucked into a Salazar whirlpool again. But Robert wants to go. You want to stay in the whirlpool here? No, I want to talk about Chicago. This is how sick marathoning is in the year 2019. Mo Farah, his PR is 205.11. Well, guess how many people in this race have run faster than that in their lifetime? Well, it's just looking up. There's at least two 203 guys in this race. Um, Lawrence Chirono. No, yeah, there are two two oh three guys. And then either of them are running well you need to check in the most recent field. Who do you have down there? But the two Dubai Dubai guys. I guess they're out. They're not running it. Get Namola and Herpesa Nagasa. Yeah, both of them have withdrawn. Oh. Oh, wow, John. You need to fly to Austria. Well, I'm looking at the August twenty eighth press release. Yeah, I I was looking on the most recent press release on Let's Run. 
I haven't. I have not. I'm sorry. With the recovery from World, I have not been able to look up the most recent entry list. So I guess Robert's question is mute. Then moot would be the the term. Uh, but the, well, the question is still. I'll answer the question. Uh, it's four. There are four guys who have run two hundred four in this race. Lawrence Chirono, who's the Boston Marathon champion, he's tied for the fastest PR with Asefa Mengsu of Ethiopia, who ran two hundred four hundred six in Dubai last year. I mean, I think to me, this race probably comes. To, I think it comes down to Rupp, Farah, and Lawrence Chirono because Chirono, we, we, he won in Boston and he outkicked uh, Lisa De Cesa in that race and Kenneth, Kenneth Kipkmoy as well. And he also has just a fantastic marathon record in general. He's got six wins in the last four years. He's won Amsterdam twice. He's won Honolulu twice. He has the course records at both of those races. He's just a stud. So I think to see him face Farah, who was a pretty, he was a respectable fifth in London this year. He ran 205, uh, which is, it's just tough. Like two guys in that race ran 202, another one ran 203. He was just going to have to have a really good day. But in this race, I guess what I'm interested in is how fast it goes out. Because I think the weather is shaping up. It looks really good for this weekend. If you look at the, the forecast for Sunday, high of 57 in Chicago, partly cloudy that's you know as long as the wind is all right that's almost perfect for marathoning so how fast will they decide to go out if they if mo farah just sort of can if it can go slow and farah can do what he did last year and just turn it into maybe like a four mile race i think that favors farah but it'll be interesting to see well the marathon's at a whole nother level i was like wait farah's a good marathoner now i'm like what's he done then i see he's only run 205 and i'm like wait that's not good anymore we're at 201 it's just sort of crazy, and we can get to the NALs thing in a bit, but, like, you know, let's say these shoes are worth a minute and a half. So if a 205 is really the old 206.30, that's not that great. But Farah did win here last year. He's run respectively in London um, and, you know, going out very hard in London. So I think he's ready to run much faster. What's Toronto's PB? I mean, I don't think – I think Toronto has – more wins than sort of dominant fast times. But I think you got to start thinking, you know, we might see the course record challenged. Yeah, no, he, Toronto's run two Oh four Oh six, but he ran that in a win in Amsterdam. And his second best time is two Oh five Oh nine, which is also a win in Amsterdam. Both of those were course records. So I think the course record in Chicago, I believe off the top of my head, is Dennis Comedo's 203.45 from 2013. I have to confirm that for you, but I think that could fall if they go after it. I Actually, I will have to study up. They brought back pacemakers for last year. I assume they're going to still be here this year. I haven't seen that 100% confirmed, but I think these guys, you know, could Mo Farah run two hundred three? I wouldn't. I wouldn't be totally shocked by it. He ran two hundred five eleven last year, and it looked like he had a lot left at the end of the race. What's the American record in the marathon? Like, is, is it still Canucci? Yeah, it is. Right, Khalid Canucci two hundred five thirty eight. That's kind of crazy. I mean, Galen Rupp could get that and get clobbered in this race. All right, shall we discuss the men, the women here, or do you have a final point on the men, anyone, or shall we move on to the women? I'll take that as a no. All right, women's field. This one, quite a bit simpler to predict, I think. We've got the best marathoner in the world, Brigitte Cosguy, who has a 218.20 PR. She's a defending champion, and she's the London Marathon champion as well. 
And I really think she could have run about 216 in London this year if she didn't go out so slow for the first half. She set the record for the fastest second half in any marathon when she won London this year. So I think we really, if she, if she really wants to go out with it and she has a male, male pacer to follow or, some, or maybe just men in the field to run with, I think she could run. I wouldn't be surprised if she ran 216 here with how the weather looks. Yeah, John, I mean, looking at this women's field, I was about to say there's only two words we need to say. Bridget Koskai, she's the dominant force here for sure. I mean, the world's top marathoner. She just ran 64-28. I mean, it's a point-to-point course at the Great North Run. That's the fastest half marathon ever. There's just no reason not to pick her to win this race. I guess the other two words we would say are Jordan Hesse. You know, how does she do here? Um, this will be a big run for her heading into the Olympic trials. Well, there's a lot of interesting and more American storylines. I mean, you've got Laura Thweet, Emma Bates, Stephanie Bruce, Lindsay Flanagan, um, Taylor Ward, Sarah Sellers. Those are all the U.S. elites. But a, a number of people, you know, I mean, I, I think that most people assume Jordan, if she's healthy, she's going to make the Olympic team. But it's getting harder and harder. You know, I mean, Sarah Hall, would you just run 222? Nobody saw that coming anywhere. So uh, a number of uh, women, you know, want to have a good last impression before the Olympic trials here in this one. But in terms of the race for the win, I mean, I would love to see Coast Guy just go for broke here. I mean, I, I can't imagine she wouldn't. Like, she could even blow up and maybe still win this race. I mean, Galetta Burke is in there, and she's, you know, often running between 220 and 222. But Coast Guy could be off her game. She could go out in 68 come home in 72 and probably still win this thing. So, you know, that would be interesting there on that front. Yeah. And I I don't think it's that interesting if she just goes out and runs 219 or 220. I mean, yes, congratulations for winning Chicago. You'll get a nice big prize, you know, big check and it'll help towards the world marathon majors standings. But as a fan, that's just not really interesting. It's only interesting if she's pushing out limits. And so I'd like to see her do that. Uh, and then Robert, you, you mentioned Sarah Hall. I think I just I just want to give her some appreciation and give her <laughs> kudos for what she did last weekend. So she ran two twenty two in Berlin two weeks ago. Then last week she comes out and runs the U.S. ten mile championships in Minnesota and wins it in fifty three eleven. So to cover to run two twenty two and then to run to, to win the U.S. ten mile champs a, a week later is ridiculous. I mean, I know we have. She she's known for having great powers of recovery. And I saw on Twitter today, one of her secrets is soaking her feet in apple cider vinegar and a water mixture to, you know, to, to help treat her toenails or something. But it's crazy to me that they're just back to back running 222 and then winning the U.S. 10 mile title is nuts. It's more impressive to me that she's so motivated at her age. I mean, she's what they've adopted the three or four kids and Hell, if I ran a marathon, I just want a mental break, just chill out at home for a week, and then she's flying to Minnesota and, and winning another race. Like, I mean, I guess when you're on fire and in the form of your life, like, I'd be motivated. I guess I used to be really motivated to run too, and I was running PRs and just doing amazing. So it's kind of like she's found the fountain of youth in her mid thirties here. Well, she's never made an Olympic team. I mean, I imagine I know that's not a motivator necessarily for running the ten mile champs, but I have to imagine that's a huge driving force in her career. Thirty six years old, she's run very well at a lot of distances, but never been really, you know, super elite in one. And now it looks like she might be close to elite in the marathon. And you know, making that Olympic team would be just huge validation for her. 
Yeah, I mean, amazing shout out to her with all this other stuff going on. Her two twenty two sort of got lost in the mix, but then yeah, a week later to come back, and I think Robert, in terms of motivation, means you know why did she come back and run the ten miler? Then she's going to do New York. She's going to do New York in the first week of November, and then try the trial. So it's all pretty crazy, but that's what's working for her. So maybe she figures, hey, I don't, I don't now just change plans all of a sudden. But she's never really. I, I would like to know, like you know, what her best finish at like a USA track finish is. You know, she even been fourth before. Like she's never made a, a, a top team, and now she's running two twenty two. It sort of shows, I guess, in her case, the perseverance. Because you know, even a year ago, you said Sarah Hall going to make the Olympic team. I'm like, nah, she'll be one of the ones people kind of pretend has a shot, but she really doesn't. And now it's like, holy crap, she's got a legit shot. So uh, kudos for her. Yeah, well. The- I see she was fit. Yeah. She was fifth in the steeple at USA's in uh, 2011. That's pr- I, without going through in total detail. So, you know, one of the weaker events, especially back in 2011, she was fifth there. So now she's doing 222. I mean, tremendous range. She's won a ton of US road titles, you know, everything from the miles to the marathon. But it's kind of interesting how you can do that and really not be. We, I fall back to the A team on the A team. She's made, you know, world cross country teams, that sort of stuff. But now, like, look out, world. I'm really interested in what do we attribute this success for? Is it kind of like she was Ryan Hall and she was in the wrong event through, you know, Ryan Hall started out as a 1500 meter runner when really he was one of the world's best marathoners. She too started off sort of in the, in the you know, the shorter distances and didn't move to the marathon until 2015 when she was 32 years of age. Um, so was it just a matter of the wrong event or does this actually show you sort of the, what the power of microdosing? I'm not saying she's dirty. I'm saying women in their mid thirties, their testosterone level naturally goes up. And that's why you see a lot of these women, honestly, running better than ever before. And that's becoming more and more popular. Stephanie Bruce has talked about that. So it could show you actually uh, in some ways how just a little bit of androgel rubbed into your legs. And when you get the massage guy night off could make a big difference. So I'm really just curious from a physiological standpoint, like, what do you explain this? Like I would bet my life without hesitation that Sarah Hall is clean. Like it's just, I, I would, wouldn't hesitate at all. But if you looked at her progression, if this was some unnamed, you know, Kenyan who started running at, you know, the marathon in 2015 and 231 and then 230 in 2016, and then still hasn't broken 227 in 2017, 226 in 2018. Okay. She's a little bit better. All of a sudden runs 222. People would be like, Oh, she just, you know, started doping. Like that's what people would, would be saying. This unknown person who was no good, you know, they, they wouldn't listen to any excuse about, Oh, she was a mom or this or that. And got serious. It's just really fascinating. And I, 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 I hope people take this the right way. Like I'm totally inspired by it. Like it's really amazing. I think you're onto something about maybe finding the right event. I didn't realize that she's only been doing the marathon for four years. And so you know, people, it just shows you can kind of hit your stride. And some of those other people you mentioned, you know, Stephanie Bruce is still looking for that sort of fast marathon this weekend. Laura Thweet, people kind of had, would talk of, talk of her as having a chance. And I think they're sort of now where, where Sarah Hall was before 222, kind of looking to like jump up to that total next level of like, yeah, we can make this team. All right, let's move on. Final topic, the Ineos 159 challenge. I know Robert is somewhat loath to discuss it, but I'll be watching it for sure. It's going to happen late Friday night for American fans. So the earliest it could start is 11 p.m. Eastern. 
Uh, and it also, it could start as late as 3 p.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Eastern on Saturday morning, depending the schedule being announced on Friday. And, you know, I'm going to be watching this in my hotel room in Chicago or maybe a bar in Chicago. And I'm I'm interested, you know, I, I, I think, OK, there was a point one of you guys made here about does it lose of its luster because Kennedy's Michele just ran 201-41 in Berlin? I think undoubtedly, yes, because everyone's thinking, oh, my God, can you imagine Bekele versus Kipchoge in Berlin, what that would have been like with both of them in great shape? So that's kind of a bummer. But I'm still excited to see Kipchoge do it. And I know it's not going to be enough. He'll have an asterisk. He'll always have an asterisk if he runs 159 at this thing. But for him, before Bekele reemerged, this was the only thing that is actually providing any drama or anything in his races because we all know he's going to win. He's going to run ridiculous times. This is him actually pushing his limits and seeing something he might not be able to do. I mean, I think for me, John, it has lost some of its luster, but I was never so gung-ho about this. But whether it's lost its luster for some purist or not probably doesn't matter. For the casual fan, if he goes sub-two, we have the sub-two-hour marathon and gets a lot of press in AOS, whatever they do. I'm not even sure what they do. They'll get some publicity. But we're already close now on a legit course, 201-something. But for, for most of us... That's not close. 201.39 is not close. Okay, fine. We're not close, but we've sort of shown... We've come down a minute and a half in about a couple years here. And it used to be sort of, can we break... When will we break to, you know, exi- everything else the same as now? Existing rules, existing technology. Well, now we've changed the technology and now we're changing the rules. So it's just not the same thing. I mean, we showed that downhill marathon and was it Andorra or Spain or somewhere a couple weeks ago? Like, I can get you to our marathon. You give me enough money. I'll do it. I'll do it tomorrow if they fail. I mean, Kipchoge is so amazing, but now it sort of shows, okay, well, Bekele just did this. So Bekele's run two seconds slower than Kipchoge. So it's Kipchoge. He's no longer just seen as like so much faster than everybody else. So he may be the first to do it. Maybe, you know, Bannister wasn't that much faster than Landy, but he was the first to do it. So that's all people care about. But who knows? To me, it's just about, it shows you what's wrong with the sport. It's about, it's not supposed to be about who has the best drugs or the best shoes. These shoes, I think we need to put asterisks about whoever won medals in the 2016 Olympic marathon. I mean, the only helpful thing for people like Rupp and those who did, guys who did win the medal, is that most, probably a large percentage of the athletes did have the shoes because they're all Nike sponsored. But I don't know. I mean, I guess... People argue it because in 2013, I said I wrote an article entitled "The Myth of the Two-Hour Marathon." I said I would it was there was a zero percent chance it would happen before I'm 50, but I meant a legitimate marathon, and I didn't know the stuff. You know these these shoes would exist, so you know I was willing to bet all my social security money that it didn't happen before I was 65. So that's another 20 years. So I don't know. Now it's kind of more commonplace. You know, I, I guess the the, the fact the one thing that doesn't, and I want to see actually how it's done. Are we going to have another clock? Remember last time, a lot of it was thought about the clock. Now John's got a tweet here of the new shoes, and they look crazy. I mean, they're definitely advanced from the last time. But are we going to have the pace car blocking the wind? How much of a factor is that going to be? Because people thought that was some of it. Now I think when you see Kipchoge, you see Bikile running this fast. I think you see almost all of it has got to be the shoes. Now people are also saying there's a new drink. So it's all these things that we didn't have before. But, you know, to me, the world record attempts, I actually don't have a problem with like a laser pacing them, a car pacing them. I think any world record should be, could be artificially paced the entire way. That's fine with me. But these weren't the rules we were playing with before. Like, let's just change the rules and say, okay, for rabbit and a fairy, 
You can hand people water. You can have a machine wrap at them. You can do whatever you want. If we're going to do that, then that's fine. I just don't like, quote, unquote, an exhibition taking the, the place of a major. You know, like Tiger Woods doesn't skip the Masters to do a long, long drive contest. Yeah, but I think that it speaks to how ridiculously dominant Kipchoge has been in the marathon. I mean, he hasn't lost to 2013. That he needs to do something like this in order to challenge himself. Like, he, how many legitimate times were you actually worried about him losing? I know that Garamu was with him with a mile or so to go in London. And, you know, he did trail in 2017 to Gaia in, in Berlin. But I think part of it is Kipchoge, is, he's won Berlin and he's won London so many times. He's run, he already has the world record. He has all these fast times. He's so great that he needs to do something like this in order to give himself a challenge. So I, I don't totally fault him for doing it. But now that Bekele's shown himself to be a 201 shape, you know, next next year we need we need them racing in London, we need them racing at the Olympics and I think Kipchoge is not going to shy away from that challenge. All right, John, give us your prediction, yes or no. Does he do it? I think so. I think he's in better shape than when he ran it 2 years ago because he's run since that race, he has run his two fastest times, 201.39 and, and 202.37. And he's run those his two fastest times in his last two marathons. And I also think the shoes are going to be better this time. They'll probably have learned a couple things about, you know, maybe I think the pacing formations work pretty well, but they've probably learned a few things that they could have tweaked from the first event to the second one. And it was only 25 seconds away. That's only one second a mile. I think that he will do it in Vienna and he'll run 150. I don't know if he, I wouldn't be shocked if he ran under 159, but I think it's probably going to be a time in the 159s. It's weird. Cause I, I don't know. I, I guess I would rather have the first sub two hour be on a legit course and a legit event. So I'm kind of hoping he doesn't do it, but if he's only 25 seconds away, I forgot how close he came last time. He probably does get it. Cause I assume they're going to optimize what other little things they figured out. This course is a little bit different. So maybe it's, you know, the turns, who knows? I don't know. There's no other competitors in this one, which is a little bit different. So I think it's just him right in the Pacers, but uh, I don't know. John said he's in better shape. Well, do we really know that? Or are the shoes just better than last time? You know, I mean, when he's running, I need, I guess I need to see a list of all of his marathons, but since the Olympics, what marathons has he done? That's when all his fast times are, right? And that's when these new shoes are out. So I'm just curious at some point age is going to catch up to him. So he can't keep getting better, better, better shape, but the Kaylee is older than him and running faster. I mean, running fast. So maybe age doesn't have to catch up to him yet, but I don't know. The fact that he's only got to run 26.1 miles. I mean, they, 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 you know, if you're a smart oil company and you're, and you're putting on this competition, have him a little short, make sure he gets it. Oh my God. Could you imagine the scandal that would be if it turns out that it was only 26.1? Okay, has anyone ever heard this? Someone tried to swear to me that there was no drug testing at the previous event. What, you mean at Breaking 2? Yeah. I don't remember. I think that was it was a question that was asked. Were these athletes independently drug tested by Nike? I don't remember if we got an answer. I, I don't know if there was, I guess is what I'm saying. A journalist definitely told me that at Worlds. I don't remember who. I was so tired. You know, it's probably whatever. And I'm like, what? Come on. Of course Nike's going to do that. And they're like, nope. They're in the testing pool, but they were not drug testers at the event. I'm like, come on. They're like, well, it didn't matter. And I'm like, but how can Nike? It's just terrible PR for Nike. But since it's Nike and what they've done with Alberto, I guess, you know, who knows? <laughs> I was at least, I'm like, come on. They're like, yeah, no, it's true, really. So if you know that as well, email Robert. Robert at Let's Run. 
Yeah, Elliot Kipchoge should take a drug test off the this Ineos 159 challenge. I think we all agree on that. I'm not imp- trying to imply anything at all. I just think that it was just like st- stupidity. If you're going to spend millions of dollars on an event now, like just have drug testing because one thing we've shown is drug testing. If you flunk a drug test at the event, you're a pretty dumb idiot. So just make it official. Well, I guess it can't be official, but assure the public that some part of what they're seeing was true, even though we got pacers, legal pacers and illegal drink handling, that sort of stuff. But guys, I don't know what we're going to talk about next week. I guess we can talk about these events after they actually happen. And then Robert will have like investigated the Alberto thing more. And maybe, maybe now John Alberto Salazar will join us on the podcast. Maybe we like, what's he going to be doing for the next four years? John, he's, he's going to be bored. Maybe he can become like the fourth host. I assume Nike will find a role for him and pay him. He won't be coaching, but I assume he'll take some job at Nike. Wow. If I was Alberto, I would telecast, I would broadcast the Olympics, take over for Craig Masbach's job. People think I'm kidding, but Alex Rodriguez. There's no way NBC would hire someone who's banned from the sport of track and field as that lead track and field announcer. What do you mean? Fox Sports has hired Alex Rodriguez. I see him every night doing baseball commentary. So it's so insulting. He's not currently banned from baseball. He might as well be. He's been banned so many times. Yeah, he that's the crazy thing. If A-Rod would have a lifetime ban if he's in track and field. Instead, now he's like the face of TV. And I see why Lance Armstrong gets pissed. Meanwhile, Alberto can't do broadcasting. I mean, I guess people would flip out, but he could still be a good broadcaster, I assume. I can't believe John thinks Nike would hire him with the ban is up, but I guess they would just double down. They've spent how much money have they spent defending this guy? You don't think that they would say, "Hey, sorry, you lost. Take this, you know, gig in Beaverton." They didn't hire Lance Armstrong once he lost, but that he Salazar has already lost, and they're still sticking by him. But, but I guess they can plausibly believe, you know, he's innocent. That these are technical things, blah blah blah. Once you lose at the Supreme Court, it's a different thing. I feel like. Well, I don't know. Maybe this goes to the Supreme Court. But, you know, I think they can find a job for him in the Alberto Salazar building somewhere in Beaverton. Yeah, John, will they strip the name off the building? I'll see. Well, I, I kind of want him to get hired by NBC. That was really a joke. But to me, one of the biggest things, and you guys actually asked me about it, and then we kind of told me to write the article, which I think actually Weldon ended up writing. But on the NBC broadcast, Craig Mosbach, who is a high-up Nike executive, is the main distance analysis in the United States. Friend of Let's Run. Yeah, he's a friend of Let's Run. He reads the site. He's very nice to us, but I, I don't understand how they couldn't mention that fact. Like, he, how can he possibly comment on the Svan Hassan thing in an objective way? He can't. That's why I ever sent him an email. I said, Craig, you need to acknowledge the fact that you're a Nike employee on here. And I never heard it, not once. And to me, this is so bad from, an, from a journalism standpoint. If someone asked me, like, well, what do you think of your brother Weldon being banned? I say, well, it's hard for me to talk about him because he's my brother. Well, what do you think about Hassan's ban? Well, it's hard for me to talk about it objectively because I'm a Nike employee. It's not that hard. If I'm Lee Diffie, I can just say, Craig, I know it's hard for you to talk about this since you're a Nike employee, but this is big news. And then it's just at least out there. I mean, it, it's not that hard to do this. And it's not like there was some edict from NBC because Tim Layden has started doing sort of some vignettes and stuff at big events and he had one on the final day uh, i saw a tape of it and he mentioned salazar and that sort of stuff so it's not like they're not trying to cover it but i feel like when you cover it you have to say and also just for the fact that the viewers need to know in general that high up at nike is doing it and craig is very high up you know he's kind of be 
I think he's their legal guy or maybe even more for like the Asian market. Like that's the number one important thing for Nike coming up. And it's not like also in this case that he just works at Nike and the Salazar was a Nike sponsored guy. The company has come down and saying, we're backing this guy. So it's then hard for anyone who doesn't fear for their job to, to be honest about it. So like, just come on, just, it's not that hard. You just have to divulge these things. It's like people say we're not journalists, but this is journalism 101. Right. Well, it's not, it's not even that Craig needs to comment on it. NBC just needs to acknowledge that he's an employee and then he can say, I don't feel comfortable commenting because I'm an employee, but you need to let the viewers know what they're seeing. Agreed. Okay, guys, John, get some rest. We're putting you on a plane to Chicago. No one will be in Austria unless Robert flies out there. Robert, it's probably pretty nice this time of year in Austria. But until next week, guys, signing off, Weldon Johnson. Oh, wait, we're still on the podcast, actually. For our famous friends, we didn't mention all of our sponsors and whatnot. But next week, we're going to have some great listener audio. Just let's say some guy goes unhinged on the Let's Run voicemail. It was pretty crazy. We wanted to play it today, but we've gone on too long. So next week, crazy listener audio. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.